0: 440. As we begin, uh, let me pray for God's help. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, I pray that you would be feeding us. Help me to be clear and faithful. Give us open hear- ears and hearts to hear your truth. In Jesus' name, Amen. I don't know how many of you would recognise this painting, which will hopefully appear behind me, um, it's called Ecce Homo or EK," depending on your l- Latin pronunciation, and was painted on the wall of a church in a town in Spain by an artist called Elias Garcia Martinez. You may, however, recognize this. This went viral in 2012 and was slightly unkindly called the Monkey Christ. Concerned that the paint was beginning to flake a local parishioner decided to try to restore Ece Homo with these comedic results. The beautiful painting is ruined. Here's a, a before and after. I mean, you can see there's a, a bit of damage on the painting on the left, but the attempted restoration is a disaster. Laughable, a write-off. Have you ever felt a bit like a write-off? Maybe you still do. Maybe it's something you did which you can't take back, that person you hurt. Maybe it's something everyone knows about. You feel ashamed like everyone is talking about you. Or maybe it's that secret thing, that thing which you hope nobody ever finds out about, which keeps you up at night. Maybe sometimes you feel like it's just all of life. Every decision you make seems to be a wrong turn. Maybe sometimes you feel like there's just no way back for you. Like nobody would want anything to do with you. Like God would not want anything to do with you. Oh, I know I've felt like that. Some of us here, we know that we're write-offs. Some of us maybe think that we're not. We try to deceive others and ourselves by putting up a front. We're trying to paint over the cracks, putting on a good face. But all too often, it just makes more of a mess just like that well-meaning parishioner fixing up the painting, it just, don't, it just won't work. This is what it looks like when we try to fix ourselves, to restore ourselves. It's a bot's job. How can a good and holy God want anything to do with a write-off like me? How can there be hope for me? Well, our psalm today is about a people who've been written off. Um, as Andy sort of mentioned earlier, this is not a psalm written for the kingdom of Judah, under a king in the line of David. It's written about the rebellious and evil kingdom of the north. They were destroyed by the Assyrian army. Their people carried off into exile, never to return. Their land resettled by foreign nations. The northern kingdom of Israel was wiped off the map, and the Mongol people who lived there became the Samaritans who we see in the gospels as a people despised by the Jews of the day. This Psalm was likely written in the aftermath of this destructive event. How can there be hope for them? How can they be restored? They're a write-off. Well, spoiler alert, there is hope for them, just as there is still hope for me, just as there is still hope for you. Now, this psalm has a clear structure. You can see this on the screen here. We've sort of got a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, what I'm calling it a bridge, and then a chorus. And we, we get this repeated chorus or refrain, variations of, say, in verses 3 and uh, uh, other verses, there are variations of, Restore us, O God, make your face shine on us, that we may be saved. God's people need God to restore them. They need God's face to shine on them and save them. This is a cry of confident assurance in a good God. If God's face will shine on them, then everything will be all right. Like the face of a new father looking down at the tiny little bundle in his arms with a beaming smile, vowing to care for and protect this little one. I'm sure Dave might have felt that on Friday night as he held our little girl in his hands. What a wonderful picture. As we go through this psalm, we'll keep coming back to this picture. And we'll see that this psalm is about write-offs and a father whose face shines on them and restores them. So again, if, you, if you've closed your Bible, please make sure it's open uh, to Psalm 80 on page 440. And let's start at verse one. As the psalmist calls on the shepherding God whose might sleeps. Let's look down. Hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth between Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awaken your might. Come and save us. This psalm starts with a call for rescue from the God of power. The psalmist is calling on the shepherd God of Israel, the God who leads his people to lush pasture and protects them from harm. The reference to Joseph in verse 1 is to this northern kingdom of Israel, which was dominated by the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, who we see referred to in verse 2, who were the sons of Joseph. I'm sure you know the story of Joseph popularized in the musical uh, the amazing Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. I think we've got a lovely poster there. Joseph was a, a big-headed dreamer who was sold into slavery by his brothers and thrown into jail, written off. But because of the mighty hand of the shepherd, the Rock of Israel, Joseph was elevated to the highest position in the land under Pharaoh. His brothers bowed down to him. He rescued his family from famine and death. In verse 1, the psalmist also calls for, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth between Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. This is a reference to the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments, which had cherubim on its lid, and God's presence resting on it. When God rescued his people out of Egypt, on their march into the promised land, the Ark of the Covenant would lead God's people and went before them into battle. God's presence and glory shining forth before them, winning their battles. It's also a heavenly image. God is on his heavenly throne, attended by his cherubim. God is the all-powerful monarch of heaven and earth, whose presence was with his people. God's people, they need this warrior God on their side. The God of might can save them. He's got this proven track record. He has the power. But here's a surprise in verse 2. He's not fighting for them anymore. God appears to be asleep. Awaken your might. Come and save us. This is the cry of the psalmist in this first section of the psalm. Do it again. Why do you sleep? Awaken your might. Fight for us again. Go before us again in your glory, like you did in those days gone by. Do you ever feel, in your circumstances, looking at your life like God is silent? Maybe you feel like that sometimes. Frustrated at a God who appears to be silent, appears to be asleep. Well, I want to reassure you, he's, he's not, but let's come back to that later. Because in verse three, we come get into our chorus for the first time. Restore us, O God, make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Restore us, O God, as you restored Joseph when he was a write-off. Make the light of your favor shine on us as it shone on Joseph. But how can this be? Well, that isn't Answered quite yet. And, and it leads us into the second sort of verse section of our psalm where we see the providing God whose anger smoulders. Look down with me at, at verse 4. How long, Lord God Almighty, will your anger smoulder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears, you have made them drink tears by the bowlful you have made us an object of derision to our neighbors and our enemies mock us. Rather than the beaming light of God's smile, instead, his people face the smoke of his anger, which smolders against them. There's a relationship problem between God and his people. When the Israelites were wandering in the desert, after God had brought them up out of Egypt in the Exodus, God provided them with manna, the bread of angels which fell from heaven. When they were thirsty, God gave them sweet water, water from a rock. But now, in verse 5, God is only feeding them with the bread of tears. Rather than sweet water, he's only given them tears to drink, tears by the bowlful or the bucketful. Rather than the enemies of God's people being driven out before them by the Lord Almighty, God's people have become the object of ridicule, mocked and derided in verse 6. The God who provided for them miraculously in the desert is feeding them with tears. Tears for their loved ones killed and homes destroyed by the rampaging Assyrian army. Tears for their people carried off into exile. Tears for their cities occupied by strangers. They're crying. They're remembering those times of wonderful provision. And now they're feeling empty. I wonder if you ever feel like that. Sometimes the tears come by the bucketful. When my wife and I were about six months into the adoption process, we hit an absolute low when the social worker who was assessing our suitability to be adoptive parents took offense at some of our Christian beliefs. For weeks, we didn't know if that was the end of the road for us being able to have a child while our adoption agency decided what to do. Sometimes the tears come by the bucketful but in the midst of the tears and the smoldering anger, we come back to our chorus and hit our notes of hope. Restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Restore us. Restore our relationship. Provide for us again as you did in the desert. Wipe away our tears like a gentle father. Turn us back to you. When the tears came by the bucketful, for me and Fiona, this is where we needed to rest, trusting in God's restoration. We then move into the next sort of verse section of this song. And the psalmist starts th- to answer the question of what has gone wrong between God and his people. In verses 8 to 12, the psalmist uses this picture of God's people as a vine, where we see the gardening God whose judgment destroys. Look down with me, starting at verse 8. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reached as far as the sea. Its shoots as far as the river. As we've already been hearing, God brought his people up out of Egypt, up out of slavery, and into the land he'd promised. God drove out the nations before his people. He cleared the ground before planting them. Like a diligent gardener to give this vine the best chance to flourish. With no competition for the best soil and light. This vine took root and filled the land. It grew and thrived. Behind me, you can see some pictures of... Some vines in the lovely south of France. As you can see, vines don't grow particularly tall, but this this is a super vine which shades even the mountains and the mighty cedars. Um, here's a picture of a cedar tree for context with the mighty mountains. It has spread from the sea to the river, the Mediterranean Sea to the Euphrates, the borders of the land God promised the Israelites in Exodus twenty-three. This is a wonderful picture of God's people as they were supposed to be. A united people, filling the land and making God's blessing known to all people. God the gardener has given this vine every chance to flourish. What more could he have done for his vineyard? But something's gone wrong. Look down with me at verses 12 and 13. Why have you broken down its walls? so that all who pass by pick its grapes. Boars from the forest ravage it, and insects from the field feed on it. God has broken down the walls of the vineyard. Without its protective walls, the grapevine is vulnerable. All who pass by can pluck its fruit. The vineyard that God has planted and the vine he has tended has been raided by its enemies. That word feed in verse 13 is the same Hebrew word for shepherd in verse 1. It's a horrible contrast. The shepherd God who used to lead his people to lush pasture is pasturing his people's enemies. The psalmist asked the question in verse 12, Why? Why have you broken down its walls? Why has God turned over for judgment the vine he worked so hard to cultivate? Well, we see elsewhere in the Bible that when God looked for a crop of good fruit from his vineyard, it yielded only bad fruit. God planted his vine and tended it, but it's not produced ripe, juicy grapes, only bad fruit, not good for anything. God's people were supposed to be living in relationship with him, following the covenants between God and his people. But they messed up time and again turning away from the Lord God and instead worshipping other gods, despite God sending numerous prophets to warn his people and to call God's people back to himself. Israel were given so much, a covenant relationship with God, a promised land flowing with milk and honey, a warrior God who went before them to destroy their enemies, but produced so little this is why God's anger smolders against his people. And so he sent his judgment in the form of the Assyrian army. When you look at your life, do you see good fruit or only bad? Given how good God has been to us, so often we turn away from him and chase other fruitless pursuits. Sex, money, power, security, comfort. That's what we thought about earlier in our time of confession, didn't we? Ultimately, God's people need God to relent, to turn from his righteous anger at their sin and to turn his favour back to them, to restore them. This is the cry of the psalmist in verse 14. Return to us. Now, ignore the NIV that doesn't it put the spaces in different places. This is where we come back to our chorus, but it's not our usual chorus. As we look at the returning God, whose king restores. Look down with me at verse 14. Return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine. The root your right hand has planted. The son you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down. It is burnt with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. From heaven, look down upon your vine. Your people with favour, with the light of your face shining upon them once more. I said, verse 14 is a twist on the previous refrain. That phrase, restore us, in verses 3 and 7, is more literally, turn us back to yourself. But here it is God whom the psalmist calls to turn, using that same word. In order for sinful people to have a restored relationship with God, they need God to turn back to them. How will this be achieved? Well, I'll we'll look at verse 17. Let your hand rest on the man of your right hand, the son of man you've raised up for yourself. Who is this man of your right hand, the son of man? Well, it's God's people and their king. If the king is faithful, he leads the people to faithfulness and calls them to repentance and God's blessings follow. Israel needed God to return to them, to take the initiative, to raise up a king, a man of his right hand, that God's right, mighty hand would rest on. We heard during our confession about King Hezekiah, the king of Judah, who called the refugees from the northern kingdom to repent, following their defeat and exile. And this psalm may originally have been sung at the great Passover feast held by King Hezekiah after that decree. The remains of the smashed up northern kingdom come to Jerusalem and Hezekiah says, come here, stay here where there's peace. Join with us in Judah. Be restored. But Hezekiah had his own failings. He wasn't the king we were looking for. He couldn't deal with God's anger at his people's sin. Look down at verse 18. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. In their current state, sinful people like, like them and like us, we're spiritually dead. We need God to revive us for us to call on his name. But how can sinful people go from death to life? How can sinful people go from backsliding and, and rejection of God to true repentance and fruitful lives? How can the smoke of God's anger against sin be turned the marvellous light of his face. We need God to take the initiative to restore us, to revive us, to shine the light of his favour upon us, to save us from his wrath and judgment. Fortunately for us, God took that first step by sending his one and only son into the world. Jesus is the man of God's right hand the Son of Man God raised up for himself. In dying on the cross, Jesus took the penalty that sinful people deserve. He did what Hezekiah could not. He turns away God's anger and instead makes God favorable towards us. The great enemies of sin and death were defeated by the God of mighty power. During Jesus' ministry on earth, we see that he spent most of his time with the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners, the crippled, the blind, the deaf, the unclean. He goes to those written off by society and offers them forgiveness and a new life. We see this most powerfully when Jesus meets a Samaritan woman, part of this despised Mongol remnant. Of the northern kingdom. Scandalously, she's had five husbands and isn't married to man number six. She's a write-off. But Jesus knows her and he loves her. He reveals himself to her as the Messiah who the write-offs are waiting for. Jesus is God's king who goes to the write-offs and restores them and he's still doing this today restoring write-offs like Nicky Cruz. Born in Puerto Rico as one of a family of 18 children, Nicky suffered severe physical and mental abuse as a child. When he was 15, he was sent to visit an older brother in New York. By age 16, he'd become a member of a notorious Brooklyn street gang known as the Mau Mau's. Within six months, he became their president through being the most willing to do the worst acts of violence. Nikki was lost in a cycle of drugs, alcohol and brutal violence. Arrested countless times, a psychiatrist predicted that Nikki was headed to prison, the electric chair and hell. His life was going down the plug hole. He was a write-off with seemingly no hope but one day he met a street preacher named David Wilkerson who preached the good news to Nicky, that there is a God who restores the write-offs. God used Wilkerson's gospel message and the love of Jesus to melt Nicky's heart. He received the forgiveness, love, and new life that can only come through King Jesus. Through God's grace, Nicky was restored and he dedicated his life to reaching other write-offs like himself with the good news. Restoring write offs like the Apostle Paul, who went from a zealot who persecuted God's church to the great evangelist to the Gentiles. Restoring write offs like me. Restoring write offs like you, if you listen to the voice of God's King. And come to Jesus for restoration. In verse 19, we come back to our wonderful refrain. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. How do you think God feels as his face looks down on you? Does it smolder with anger? Well, if you are following King Jesus then the wonderful good news is that his face shines, shines down on you as a father looking down on his adopted child with that wonderful beam. We can tie up our loose ends that we, we left earlier. God isn't asleep. He entered history to save us with mighty power. While we may sometimes cry buckets of tears, the day will come when God will wipe every tear from our eyes. If we're putting our faith and trust in King Jesus, in his death which turned God's anger away, then we are made part of the true vine that we heard about in our second reading. The vine for which Israel was just a small picture. The fruitful vine, bearing the fruit of true repentance through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Please, Listen to the dreadful warning of this psalm. There is a holy God whose anger smoulders against sinners who will one day face his judgment. But please also listen to the wonderful good news of this psalm. God took the initiative. He raised up King Jesus, the man of his right hand, to deal with God's anger and to call sinners to repentance. Don't think you're a no if God can restore the Samaritan woman, if He can restore Nikki Cruz, if He can restore Paul, if He can restore me, then God can restore you. If you've put your faith in King Jesus, then you can stop trying to pretend there's no need to put on a front, to layer on the paint, because your Father's face shines upon you. Stop trying to rely on yourself for restoration and rely on the Holy Spirit to bring the good fruit of true repentance. Let me finish with these words that will come up behind me from Revelation 22, talking about that future heavenly city. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. All of us were write-offs. All of us had turned away from God and faced the smoldering smoke of God's anger with nothing we could do to restore ourselves. But if we put our, God's, if we put our trust in God's King, then we will spend the rest of eternity in the beaming light of our heavenly Father's smile. Hallelujah! Let me pray as I close. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your fi- face shine on us that we may be saved. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you sent your Son to come and restore the write-offs, write-offs like me. Thank you that when you look down at me because of your Son's wonderful work, you look down on me with the light of your face shining upon me and upon all who are trusting in you and who are adopted into your family. Help us to heed the warning and listen to the call of your King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.